Well, hello and welcome. I would say again, but for you, it's not again. For me, it's again. A minute ago, we thought we were uh, launched in live, and then I saw a message that we were not launched in live, uh, but now we are. So uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us today for this special event. We're running a few minutes behind uh, due to our technical difficulty, uh, but we are here, and we have a really great event um, in store for you today. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and director of the group called the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, this is a group I formed about two and a half years ago to look at the issue of restraint and seclusion in schools across the country and beyond. Uh, I had never heard of the terms restraint and seclusion before in the context of a school until it happened to my son. Uh, and then I found out that kids are routinely restrained, secluded, uh, even exposed to things like corporal punishment in schools across the nation. Uh, the problem doesn't end in schools. We find that kids are being restrained, secluded, uh, and having much worse things happen to them also in behavioral programs uh, collectively known as the troubled teen industry. Um, we're going to talk about that more in a minute, but I want to tell you a little bit about the Alliance. Uh, we were formed really with the mission of connecting people together to um, change minds, laws, hearts, policies, and practices so that things like restraint and seclusion are reduced and eliminated uh, throughout the country and beyond. Uh, our vision is safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. All that said, we care. It's not just about restraint and seclusion. It's restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment. It's all the things that are happening to youth and children in the name of behavior. And that doesn't end in schools. It happens in residential programs. It happens in uh, mental health settings. It happens in a lot of other places. We don't want to see anybody treated those ways anywhere. Uh, especially given that there are far better ways that we can be supporting people. Um, so our show today is about the troubled teen industry. And I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Uh, every year, there are thousands of young people that are sent against their will to facilities designed to control and manipulate their behavior. Uh, these facilities have a lot of different kinds of names. They can be boot camps, behavioral modification facilities, wilderness programs, gay conversion. Uh, and they're marketed to parents under this idea that, you know, if their children need to change their behavior, that they can send them here and they will be fixed. Um, and, uh, you know, parents often are looking for solutions and, and children are sent into these programs that can really be uh, damaging. Collectively, these programs are called the troubled, troubled teen industry, something that you may have heard of more recently as it's been getting more exposure in the news and press. Um, in these programs, young people are restrained, secluded, drugged, starved, neglected, and abused. There's a lot of really negative things that happen to people. So today we've got a really uh, special opportunity. We're gonna be talking with survivors from the troubled teen industry. Uh, we're gonna be hearing their stories and their ideas about how to uh, address this problem. Uh, we do wanna let our viewers know that this could be triggering. This is going to be difficult to listen to perhaps at times, hearing the experiences that people have had. Uh, so keep that in mind. And, and you know, if you need to step away, uh, the event will be recorded. Uh, I do want to let everybody know that we will be taking questions today uh, during the presentation. So if you have questions or comments, feel free to put those in the chat. I'll try to monitor those and ask those questions as we can. I uh, also want to welcome people, you know, feel free to put in the chat, you know, who you are, where you're from, why you're interested in the topic. 
uh, and hopefully we'll be able to address any questions that others might have. And again, we'll be recorded, will be available on YouTube, Facebook, and as an audio podcast. So with all of that, um, this is about the part that I finished a minute ago before I realized we weren't live. So now we're gonna actually be live and get to introduce all of our guests. What I want to do is kind of bring our guests up just for a very quick introduction, and they'll each have an opportunity to introduce themselves as well in a bit more detail. So we've got Robert joining us today. Hey, Hello. Robert. Hey. Uh, we've got Chelsea joining us today. Hey, Chelsea. Hello. Uh, we've got Kayla today joining us. Hey, Kayla. Uh, and Gabriel joining us today. Hey, Gabriel. And we have Josh joining us today. So we've got a, a really uh, fantastic panel joining us today. Uh, and they're going to be sharing their stories and thoughts about how we can uh, change and stop the abuses that have been happening in this industry. Um, I do want to acknowledge, though, um, now that all of you are on, uh, I know that you are all survivors of the troubled teen industry. Um, I also know I, I've known many of you for, for some time and uh, some of you I've just met more recently. But uh, I do know from what I've seen and, and the conversations we've had that you're all really amazing advocates that are trying to, to do things to change the industry. Um, and it's tough. You know, when we get through something traumatic, sometimes we just want to put it in our rearview mirror. And I appreciate all the dedication you have. And, and that really, you know, the, the hope is that people behind you are benefited and that these things don't continue to happen. So, you know, I really want to thank you for joining us today, sharing these experiences, because I know that they can be difficult. Um, and I do want to mention kind of in that vein that, um, you know, that this, these are difficult conversations. Um, you know, while I appreciate that all of you have been willing to, to share your experiences and share your voices, uh, if at any time during this discussion you need a break or you find something triggering, you want to turn off your camera, you're welcome to. If you need to leave, um, you know, you're welcome to as well. I understand it. It's kind of difficult and, again, have so much, um, you know, uh, gratitude for you all for, for coming here and, and sharing this. So with that, what I'm going to do and uh, now just reviewing, we are really live this time. So let me go ahead and get Josh added back in here. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask each of you, if you would, to introduce yourself. And if you would tell us who you are, where you're from, and a little bit about your experience in the troubled teen industry. You know, um, you know, it can be maybe, you know, where or how or why you you were in this or any ideas that you want to share. Um, you know, we'll just keep kind of uh, a brief introduction, but enough to give people an understanding of what your experience has been. And as I said last time, Chelsea, I'm going to start with you. Now you know, so I, I should have shaken it up. Uh, <laughs> I've known you for quite a while. So if you want to tell people a little bit about who you are, that would be fantastic. Sure. Um, first of all, thank you, Guy. Um, I just want to say that I really appreciate the work that the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint has been doing. Um, this is an awesome organization, and I really appreciate you bringing this important issue to light. Um, I am a survivor of the troubled teen industry. When I was 17, I was actually sent to a behavior modification program abroad in Jamaica, um, a facility that is now closed called Tranquility Bay. Um, I started getting involved in advocacy against the troubled teen industry about 10 years later. Um, I discovered a box filled with my old journals and program papers, and it led me down a whole path of memories that I had tried to forget about. Um, and I started writing about my experiences then and really researching the industry. Um, that's kind of my strong suit is investigative research. And that's where I tend to do most of my work in this industry is really understanding the background, the history and the why um, behind why these facilities are able to flourish. Um, 
so yeah, that's, that's my story. Okay. Okay, great. Um, Josh, why don't we go on to you? Hi, everybody. Thanks, Kai. Thanks for the invitation and thanks for all the work that you do. Uh, I was sent in 1993 by my parents to uh, Freedom Village, USA in upstate New York from Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, you know, culture shock for sure. Um, you know, this was a religious boarding school uh, ruled by one man. Uh, it was a very, very, uh, it, it was a cult. And that's, that's, you know, the best way to say that. Um, you know, I spent, um, I spent almost a year, about 10 or 11 months there. And, um, you know, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty tough. And, you know, coming from a religious background, the, the religious part of it was not that bad, but the emotional abuse, the restraint that I experienced there, uh, as they were they call themselves casting out demons mm. and piling on me, um, uh, that, that type of stuff was really, it was really tough. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. Uh, helped uh, in 2019. I started with um, Gabe and Jazz with the Freedom Village Experience uh, in an effort to stop Freedom Village from moving to South Carolina, uh, and we were successful in that. Uh, Liz also helped us, and um, you know that that kind of got us started into. Uh, we, you know, my intent was when we got that done to stop. You know, that was my goal was to get it shut down. And we, we accomplished that, but I, I can't uh, I can't stop as long as these kids mm. are still in these homes and, and experiencing the abuse that that I know they're, they're experiencing, what I experienced and a whole lot more. Mm. Um, you know, I actually got off easy when looking back and then hearing some of the stories that I hear, uh, you know, like uh, Agape and some of the stuff that those guys have been through, Circle of Hope. And those are those are terrible, terrible places. And um, I can't stop until we're done. So I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I started out on this journey that I've been on because of what happened to my son. And um, at one point we were successful in changing the school's policy and, and practice in our district. And my son said, well, does that mean you're done with this? Uh, you know, this issue of restraint and seclusion. I'm like, well, no, because if we move tomorrow, it could happen again. And, and knowing that it's happening, you know, I mean, it's the same thing that you're saying, knowing that it's happening to others. Um, you, you kind of feel that sense of obligation to do something. And I, I'm really glad that, that you did um, and uh, continue to do this. So thank you, Josh. Um, Gabe. Sure. Uh, and th thanks, Guy, for uh, putting this all together. Um, really, you know, appreciate it that, you know, you're having the discuss, discuss, <clears throat> excuse me, discussion and uh, covering this topic. I'm Gabe Gonzalez. Um, and I'm originally from New York. Um, similar program, same program that Josh went to. I attended uh, Freedom Village uh, USA, which was located in Lake Mott, New York. Um, I had a long tour there, which was about three years. Um, and I also was there with my sibling. I had a brother who also attended that, that uh, facility with me. Um, and just to sort of recap what Josh was saying, it was a, a religious uh, facility. Um, you know, it's the best way to say it was a cult, the way they use cult-like uh, tactics. Um, every activity was a devotional sort of experience. Um, and, and really it was, I mean, one way you can look at it was like the Amish with like with electricity, right? We were isolated from the world. We weren't allowed to watch TV. 
uh, all the information that we knew what was going on. And for me, for those three years and the summers that I saw there was all dictated through, um, you can say through the pulpit, right? Um, through that religious experience. Um, from that experience um, through a survivor group um, that was created called the Freedom Village Experience, uh, some folks got together to speak out against the move uh, towards uh, South Carolina. And so in 2019, Freedom Village was leaving the state. They were running because of financial issues. Um, and that's where our group started to get a little active. Um, and we spoke out and we took action against that facility. Um, it was just basically, well, we spoke about our experiences and why they shouldn't be working with children. Um, and uh, that's, you know, from there, I'm also working with the We Warn Them campaign and other, uh, also with NIRA, the National Youth Rights Association, and all the organization. We learned just like everybody here. I think that the scope of vision was basically, you went to this place and that's all you knew. And for us, and particularly with Josh, I can speak as well. We started to learn that there was a network, there were other programs, and the fact that it was sort of continuing going on. Um, in fact, that we know that there's some staff that's been training um, and the symptoms, uh, the same allegations of abuses we saw in other programs. And so we know mm -hmm. that, that from our experience, um, we had to speak out and that, that's, all, mm -hmm. that's why we're, we're also here today. Um, to bring great. in awareness and also, you know, make sure everything is up and up. Absolutely. Uh, Gabriel, great, great to have you and, and really glad to have you working for change. Uh, Robert, you and I just had an opportunity to, to meet fairly recently, and I'd seen a program that you were on kind of talking about your story. I wonder if you can share a little bit about yourself and your experience. Yeah, yeah thanks, Guy. I appreciate it um, uh, for putting all this together. And uh, thanks, everyone, for all the work you've been doing. I've probably been... Um, helping out and uh, speaking out only for the last couple months here. Um, so I was, I went to Agape boarding school. Um, I was there from when I was 12 years old until I was 18. Mm. So for six years um, and that place um, I don't, I know Gabriel and Josh referred to their schools as religious. Um, There's nothing religious about those schools. Um, they're frauds. Um, it's a, it's a fraud facility. They're, they're not teaching religion. They're, they're teaching hate. They're teaching anything but religion and love, um, opposite of what God says. And um, I think um, since it's been starting to do this, a lot of people have reached out to me from schools all over uh, the country. And even um, there's schools that I'm learning all over the world that are like this. Um, so a lot of people say, hey, why don't you just move on? Uh, why do you keep talking about this? It's not it's so that kids five years from now don't have to be talking about the same discussion. Um, so we're all trying to work together and help the teens that have no one to protect them. Thank you so much, Robert. That, that's so important. And, you know, I, I think about, um, you know, the years that you were there and the things that you uh, went through and just from knowing, you know, some of your story, um, it's just unconscionable to me that people would think just move on. Um, you know, we don't move on for trauma. Trauma is forever. Um, we find ways to survive and we find ways to um, better work through our trauma. But you know, trauma has a lasting effect. And, you know, I applaud all of you for all of the work that you're doing. And, and you know, my, my hope is um, that that there's there's some benefit of, of doing what you're doing and trying to um, 
trying to make a difference. Um, you know, I, I, I hope that, you know, I, I find at least in my experience, there's a little bit of a therapeutic effect there from, from knowing that you're, you're making changes and being part of something. So thank you, Robert, for that, that introduction. Uh, and Kayla, you and I have just met recently, but I, I've heard some really amazing things about you uh, and wonder if you'd be so kind to introduce yourself. Hi, yeah, my name is Kayla Muskies, and I'm originally from Brownsville, Texas, but I currently live in San Antonio. Um, I'm a survivor of the foster care industry, as well as the trouble team, and how they use those resources and schools to um, find placements for foster kids who have nowhere else to go. So um, I'm also a disabled you know, citizen, so I have the aspect of where I feel as though disabled people should be protected more because they have certain rights that we have to accommodate to as a society to help them and support them. So um, even doing that now as a college student, not a lot of kids even make it to college out of foster care, mm -hmm. but I am trying to make it a point even in my own community that you know, disabled people deserve a higher education. And I guess that's what I'm really about is like educating the youth on their rights um, with the We Warn Them campaign, you know, I, I really started this work a year ago after Cornelius Frederick was murdered in a sequel <laughs> facility. Um, it incited me to look for people like Gabe and Jazz and Josh and a lot of people that I've been working with have the hearts and genuine intention to make change. So we all want to see our kids doing well, no matter what demographic they come from. So I love how, you know, the conversation in the beginning was, oh, is this, you know, have to do with demographics? No, it doesn't have to do with demographics. This is happening to people across all spectrums. Hmm. So I'm really excited to bring the perspective of the welfare system and how it's ran rampant as a social norm um, hmm. to the point where we're murdering kids and we're hmm. giving people probation for... Hmm doing that kinds of things. So thank you, Kayla. You know, you, you you brought up a number of things that really resonated with me. Um from the the work that we've been doing at the Alliance, you know, one of the things that we find is that, you know, the kids, the kids that we're talking about that are being restrained and secluded and exposed to corporal punishment and expelled and suspended, all these things in our school system. Um if you look at the data, we find out disproportionately it's it's kids with disabilities, it's black and brown children, it's children that have a trauma history, um, and, and very often we find it's the the same children that are then um, affected by the school to prison pipeline, the same children that uh, might be ending up in the the troubled teen industry. Um, you know, you think you think about um, kind of disability, neurodiversity, uh, you know, a lot of the people that I've met over the years that have, um, you know, had experiences even with the troubled teen industry, uh, maybe ADD or ADHD or dyslexic or, or have some other, um, you know, some other neurodiversity or learning disability. Um, we also see that uh, children that are in the foster care system often are children that have been through significant trauma. And, and of course, we know that trauma can affect the brain. We know that trauma can change the brain in such a way um, that that kids that have been in these situations um, become hypervigilant. They, they're waiting for the next bad thing to happen. 
And unfortunately, in many situations, they're not disappointed because uh, kids that have a trauma history aren't being really well accommodated uh, in a lot of places. So I'd uh, love to talk to you more about your, your interest, um, but I appreciate you coming in and sharing your perspective today. So with everybody introduced, what I wanted to do is shift for a second. Um, and I've got a, a, a number of questions and our conversation might go in a lot of different directions. Um, I gave a kind of a very brief introduction to the troubled teen industry and, and you've each kind of talked about a little bit about your experience. Um, but Chelsea, I'm going to start with you if you don't mind. And, and if you can expand on kind of like, what is the troubled teen industry and, and what's the history of it? I mean, I've heard things and read things that blow my mind about the relationship between the troubled teen industry and somebody used the word cults earlier. Um, but you know, uh, some of the same organizations. So could you tell us, I mean, and, and obviously there's a lot of history here, but could you tell us some of the, um, you know, really important points about the history and, and what the troubled teen industry is and about its history? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, so I think historically people have talked about the troubled teen is industry and they have mainly looked at it as a parent placement. Um, so these are facilities that parents are placing their children in unilaterally. Um, typically, you know, they don't have to go through any other systems. Um, that's how we have defined it historically. In my research, however, um, kind of tying into what Kayla was saying earlier, um, this is one giant system. There are many doors through which you may go through to get into this system. Um, but once you're in the system, you're in the system. Uh, these facilities currently house children from child welfare. They're housing children from refugee resettlement programs children who are in the juvenile justice system and diversion programs, children who have special education needs, um, you know, and they're all shoved into facilities together and treated with a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, kind of looking back at the history of the industry, unlike a lot of other cultures, um, Western cultures historically did not recognize adolescence as a unique period of development. Um, so really up until the labor rights movement, you know, children, they participated in the workforce in America. They were generally the second earners in their families. Um, so that kind of myth of there being like one earner households, that's just not true. Children were the ones bringing in the, the income. Um, once the labor rights movement kind of went into full effect and children were taken out of the workforce and began going through adolescence, it set off kind of a panic in society. Now we had all these idle hands and these kids who maybe didn't have a job. We didn't know what to do with them. We were a little bit scared. And that's really when this industry came into being. Um, we had training schools and facilities for unwed mothers. We had the traditional institutional orphanage, which most of us are familiar with. Um, and over time, those types of facilities have just changed names. So we don't say it's an orphanage anymore. We say it is a residential facility. We don't call it a training school. We call it a therapeutic boarding school. Um, and in a lot of cases now, instead of saying a child is in juvenile detention, we now say that they are in residential treatment. Uh, but functionally, these things are all the same. Uh, these are places where kids are held against their will and subjected to treatments that we know do not work. Um, there is not a lot of information collected about what happens to children when they enter these systems, but what information we do know, particularly from the child welfare system, is super concerning. Kids in residential placements are experiencing physical abuse at about three times the rate of children outside of residential placement. 
Um, if you look at just children in the foster system alone, even within the foster system, children are experiencing physical abuse two times the rate at residential facilities. Same thing goes for sexual abuse. Same thing goes for the outcomes. Children deserve to live with families and to be raised by parents in healthy environments. And facilities cannot take the place of a family. And these programs cannot take the place of parenting. That was my long rambling uh, yeah. speech. Now, but hopefully that made sense to someone besides me. Sure, <laughs> sure. Um, now, now the, these programs are often kind of under the umbrella of behavioral programs. So um, again, you know, troubled teen. So you have a troubled teen, you can send them to this ranch or this camp or this facility, and and we're going to uh, we're going to fix them. And, and what we know, uh, or or let me ask let me ask it as a question. Um, a lot of the um, practices and techniques that may be used in these facilities uh, have some pretty interesting origins as well. C can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, kind of some of the things that are being done in these facilities, kind of in the name of behavior and, and where they come from? Yeah. Uh, so for anyone who has studied kind of the history of drug rehabilitation in America, you may have heard of a group called Synanon. Uh, they were one of the first organizations to tackle uh, narcotics abuse in our country. It started off as kind of a spinoff of um, Alcoholics Anonymous, and it eventually grew into a very deadly cult. Um, people were living full time in the facility. Uh, a lot of the practices that they came up with there, which were like encounter group based therapies, um, were carried forward into what is now the troubled teen industry today. Um, and they also developed a lot of uh, kind of like large group awareness training seminars. Um, we have seen in the troubled teen industry a lot of the human potential movements, kind of seminars, programs, ideas, uh, reworked and translated into programs for youth. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's going to be stuff like EST or LifeSpring. Um, and those were all experiential things. Um, you can do some reading on them. It's super interesting and kind of gets into some culty stuff. Uh, but it's it's a lot of attack therapy, a lot of traditional brainwashing, really. <laughs> um, and these methods, you know, they do work. They break down your defenses. They help you to have a certain sort of emotional reaction. Um, ideally in a group with others, which bonds you together and which also kind of elevates the leader to an exalted status um, and makes you more malleable. And so that's why they brought in these techniques. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But their origins are in, in cults. Yeah, cults mm -hmm. and large group awareness training. Okay. Uh, I want to give anybody else that might have anything they want to add to kind of, um, you know, the, the origins of the, the troubled teen industry and, um, you know, the history and, and whatnot. Um, anybody have anything they'd like to add to what Chelsea said? I can, I can add the religious sure. aspect of that. Okay. Uh, you know, Lester Roloff, who, you know, I grew, I grew up hearing about Lester Roloff. You know, my dad was a pastor. Um, and so, you know, Lester Roloff's name was not new to me, but when I, when I started looking into, you know, deeper into the trouble teen industry, um, you know, Lester Roloff started his first home. It was for, you know, it was, it was for men, but it was for alcoholics in, uh, 1954. And, uh, then, in, in, you know, that's what he did until 1969, 68 or 69, he, he opened the Rebecca home for girls. And that's kind of where, you know, from there he expanded into Oklahoma, Mississippi, Georgia, 
Carolinas. Um, and and then when those got shut down, they kind of, that's where Robert can come in to those homes up in Missouri. Um, you know, that's where they stem from is Lester Roloff. And they would shut, shut one down in one state. They'd pick up overnight and move to another state. Uh, yeah, and I think, uh, I, I, don't, I don't mean to cut you off, Josh, but just to briefly uh, touch on your subject, I think uh, Dateline just did a, a episode about Lester Roloff um, just recently here. And there's a couple um, articles about it in the news nationally um, within the last two days. Yeah, the head Sorry. of the American has that. Yeah. If any of you have access to the links for that, uh, please share them with me and I'll make sure we put them on the Alliance page for people to to do some of their own research as well. Uh, I mean, what's the um, what's the um, so some of these, of course, are, are for profit businesses like sequel. Some of these are religious. What's the drawl of a religiously based organization? You know, why is religion? You know, I mean. I guess for lack of a better way to put it, um, you know, why is religion getting in the uh, business of, and even if we wanted to be generous here and say behavioral health, but, you know, really it seems to be behavioral manipulation. Um, for the money. For the, the money. For profit. Gotcha, I was gotcha. just about to say, yeah, it's, um, it's a private sector business that can't be regulated by the federal government. Right, right. Um, so it's a very safe guarded um excuse to mm -hmm. use in the name of money mm -hmm. yeah that, that, that's a great point and i was just thinking about uh practices like corporal punishment which are um which are, are still allowed in 19 states throughout the country uh, however it's allowed in 50 states in religious context which doesn't make any sense to me um gabe i know you were going to add something what, what did you want to add in yeah, if I can add it to it, I mean, I think that the I don't know any of these programs that are not for 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 profit, and so I think that's really um, the money aspects and and how these institutions run. Uh, and with the religious, you know, I think one of the questions also that you know some of the viewers might be wondering is that you know well, how how are they able to do these horrible things that you know we're we're discussing, right? And the with the religious programs. It seems that they use, uh, in many cases, uh, this sort of uh, religious freedoms uh, sort of uh, card that they pull. They operate under a ministry as a uh, a church, and and they will they will argue that they have the right to self-regulate. And what that means is that there's no communication, or it's hindered between the states that they're working with and the municipalities. And so they have their own mythology of how they approach things. And so when you hear things like, for example, Josh or anybody else is saying that these programs might be a cult is, you know, they really just have a very imaginary approach to what is uh, considered to be behavior uh, modification um, for their kids. And, and, and some of the stuff is so ludicrous, right? And you wonder how they get away with it. And again, it's, it's that the fact that is they have this sort of autonomy to sort of legally uh, run without intervention uh, in most cases from the state um, of what they're providing, the education that they're providing as well, right? It's, it's up to quality and, and par. Um, so those are the, th those are like the major factors to look into, how the facilities uh, look, how the facilities, uh, the food, uh, the labor that's uh, included. Um, you know, these are all the, the, the things I think that are important to also look in when we're mm -hmm. talking about the trouble teen industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Do you mind if I add one thing? Okay. Oh, um, so I think um, a lot of these schools label themselves as a religious religious schools because uh, to parents and to like state officials, like legislators, it looks like all right, it's a religious school. It's got to be. They can't be abusing kids. They want to look the other way, and. Yeah, I mean, these people, parents, they have to know about it. Um, they just want to turn the blind eye and don't want to believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also comes down, I think I touched on this the, a while ago. Um, it also comes down to politics, um, government not interfering with the ch- uh, church, which is um, religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so that's kind of what Gabriel said as well a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, l- let me shift for a second and, and I'm going to ask another question. Kayla, I'm going to ask this of you. And and if you're not comfortable with the question, you can pass and I'll, I'll take it to somebody else. But um, hearing what I heard from you, I think you might be a good one to ask this of. Um, one of the things that I think that I've I've heard and know is that there are different pathways which a kid might end up or a youth might end up in a troubled teen facility. Um, there are, are pathways that they might be sent there. Um, you know, so, so if you could talk to me a little bit about how are the different ways that people end up in these facilities? So personally, uh, my mother was killed in a car accident. So I, that's how I wound up like in the system. My, my dad was kind of given custody, but he was very sexually abusive and physically abusive. So CPS had, to remove me and my sister. But um, of course there's traumatic stories like that, but there's also military kids that I'm, you know, I'm currently talking to a girl who her mother is married to a woman in the military. So I don't know how, like she wound up in, in foster care. She's in a shelter that I used to be in when I was in foster care. Um, so yeah, that's boots on the ground type of kids that I'm talking to now. So you can get in there through the military. Um, you can get in there through being adopted and maybe your adoption home isn't working out the way that your parent, their adopted parents was hoping. Uh, you're exhibiting signs of social uh, anxiety. Maybe you're not doing well in school. So like a lot of people go to counselors or uh, other people and they give them this advice to talk to an education consultant so that this doesn't affect their education and stuff. And it, I, I feel like a lot of kids are going in there through the mental health field because that's where our stop, like that's where they're like, oh, this kid can't be in the public school sector because they need to be mentally evaluated. Um, that's how many times I had to, I had to be reevaluated to even come into the public school sector. I had already gone through treatment in other states. I was trafficked to Utah, to North Carolina. I went to wilderness programs. I went to lockdown, um, I went to Island View, which was shut down. Um, for child abuse. So a lot of these kids are being sent here either by the courts, like the family resources that the courts are using, those gap services, or they're being sent there by like counselors and mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm assuming um, that, that often um, that, that parents might be led to believe that these are programs that are going to be helpful to their children. So the, the parents are, always, are asking always. for help, but then led to believe these programs are helpful. And That's maybe why their names are so, you know, oh, Paradise right. Cove and right. Island View and New Leaf Academy and Freedom like Village. <laughs> right, right. False advertising. Yeah, that isn't ironic. Freedom Village, huh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in a place you probably didn't have a whole lot of freedom. No, um, probably had no freedom. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Um, and, and I've also heard really... Um, 
really terrible stories about, and I'm trying to think of the terminology, but uh, of how kids actually get to these facilities that sometimes kids are more or less abducted. Um, can, can anybody talk to that about kind of, um, you know, what might happen, how, how kids might end up there? Uh, anybody have any um, knowledge of that? I didn't go that way. I mean, I've heard of, I've heard a lot of stories, but I that's not the way that it was. You know, my parents took me. Gotcha. And, yeah, my parents took me as well. Um, but what is really common uh, for these facilities, especially in cases where you're going through private placement or parental placement, is the use of what's called a transport or escort company. Um, and so these are companies that parents can contract with. There are typically no registration or licensing requirements for individuals that work in this field. Um, so you coordinate with them. They come to your house generally in the middle of the night um, to do a surprise intervention with the child and to take them to the facility. So for this is usually what they recommend. They recommended this to my parents as well, um, and they chose to take me themselves. So I'm, I guess, grateful for that. Um, but for kids who go by transport, you know, the transporters come, they wake you up, they say, get in the car. They can use physical restraint. They can use mechanical restraints. So handcuffs, zip ties. Sometimes they blindfold children. Um, they don't often tell them where they're going. Uh, and in some cases, they'll even take them out of the country. Um, so for children, you know, it's a, it's a terrifying experience. And it, it definitely impacts your ability to kind of even feel safe at the facility, not that they're particularly safe in general, but you know, you may not even know what state you're in. You may not know, you know, the closest town or, or where to go. So even if running away was something that was in your mind, you know, the transport industry definitely interferes with that. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, that I'm thinking about here um, is that, um, one of, one of the, the issues that, that we see in the work that we do is um, there are many people out there today, um, and I think there's some, some positive signs, but there are a lot of people out there today that still hold these ideas about children and behaviors that I think are fundamentally wrong. Um, you know, children are often viewed uh, more as, as less than, less than a, uh, you know, an adult or a human. Children are viewed not to have, uh, you know, certain rights. Um, children are often, you know, um, subjected to a lot of consequences. Um, you know, we've heard terms like oh, tough love. They need structure. They, you know, there's a lot of really negative things that happen to kids um, in the name of people that believe. And, and you know, uh, spanking is, is a good example of that corporal punishment, uh, whether it's done at home or in schools. Um, you know, there's a lot of things out there that happen to kids that all the science now tells us is wrong. You know, the, the science tells us that. Um, you know, it's about connection. It's about relationship. It's about trust. Um, and, and these things are wrong, but very often that's what's happening. You know, that, that people believe that, well, these kids need consequence. They need direction. Um, anybody have any thoughts on that? I mean, how, how that, um, is getting kids sometimes pushed into these situations or, or what could be done differently? I, go ahead, Chelsea. If you, it's up to you. If you want to go, go. I don't, I don't want to go first. Oh, okay. Um, so I kind of mentioned adolescence briefly um, earlier, uh, but I feel like especially in our country, we tend to criminalize adolescence and adolescent behaviors. Um, 
you see this a lot um, with black and brown children who also face the additional hurdle of adultification biases where they're not even treated as adolescents. They're treated as adults and held to adult standards. Um, but typical behaviors of an adolescent, things that would be healthy, like rebelling, rebelling or, you know, experimenting with lifestyle choices, you know, to see where you fit in the world, what kind of music you like, what kind of interests and hobbies, you know, do you want to follow the same faith as your parents? Um, these are all things that in our country can lead to you being sent away or being locked up, um, you know, and that's that's a terrifying thing. I know for me, uh, I ran away a lot and that was part of why I got sent away. And you know, that was because there were things going on that I didn't know how to deal with. And mm -hmm. so while that behavior is technically criminal, um, it was also my way of communicating that there was something wrong at home. Um, and I say this at home all the time, but behavior I truly think is communication um, and children communicate through behavior the things that they do not have the words for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know you and I are both fans of uh, Dr. Garth Green's work, yes. which, which really gets into this idea that, you know, kids do well if they can. If the kids aren't doing well, then what's getting in their way? Do they have an unsolved problem or do, are they lacking a skill? And and it really gets to that, um, you know, behavior is the signal, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, your behavior running away, what what was beneath that? What was the difficulty you were having? Or, um, you know, what, what was the need that you had that wasn't being met? Um, you know, you're right. I mean, that's, that's where so much of this needs to happen. I've, you know, I, I guess I've heard some stories from people that have had experiences with the troubled teen industry and really been surprised at, at the things that they may have been sent there for, because to me, they didn't seem to, you know, like you said, escalate above what would be typical behavior. And, you know, somebody said to me recently, and, and I'm trying to remember who it was, but we were talking about kids and what our goals might be for kids. And, uh, there, there was a quote that was something effective. Nobody, nobody's goal is to raise a compliant child. Yet that seems to be the goal in a lot of our schools and a lot of our um, facilities is it's all about compliance. You know, we want to raise imaginative, uh, you know, people with uh, imagination and people with ideas and people that will challenge ideas that won't make sense. Yet, you know, so many of these institutions are let's beat them down until they are compliant. Let's let's not help them to develop skills to more adaptively behave, but let's let's dictate the behavior that we want to see. Uh, and, and then, you know, from a top down approach, you know, try to manipulate that behavior into happening, uh, which I find really, really troublesome. Robert, you were going to add something, I think, to, before Chelsea spoke. Yeah, so I. Um, the a lot of this is parents. Um, so at Agape, I know you you all probably have the same stories at Agape. A lot of us were adopted. I was adopted from Russia when I was three um, and sent away at age 12, like why and it wasn't just me there's probably like 40 50 kids there in my six years that were adopted maybe more um and the parents it, it's nature versus uh nurture and parents don't want to raise them that it, oh it's too hard oh it's it, don't have a kid don't if if you know it, it's raise the child the right way and if if there's there's my mom um my mom wrote a letter to a podcast I just spoke on about a 20 page email. And she said, um, Robert was sent to Agape boarding school uh, for six years um, for four things. A, um, telling me he hated me when he was 10 years old. Okay. Every kid does that. 
-hmm. Secondly, I would, I, I never got in trouble with the law. I never did a drug. I never did anything. Like I ran, like, I think what really did this draw, like one time I was at the store with my mom and I have four sisters and they like to shop and I was young. And I remember just leaving the store and walking home and my mom's like, you ran away. And I'm like, I ran home. Like, how did I run away? So, and yeah, just, I mean, nature versus nurture, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and again, I mean, those are the kinds of things that I, in fact, when you and I talked, I mean, you know, it kind of surprised me um, to, to hear the kinds of behaviors that people are sometimes concerned about. I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've got two kids. My son is 16. My daughter is 12. Um, I really love being a parent and, and my kids are great and I would do anything I could for them. Um, you know, and, and there are challenges. And when we can, I can reflect on myself and think about the challenges that, you know, that I presented to, to my parents. But you're right. That's that's part of the journey. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think you, you are right that we do see um, more children that may have been uh, adopted or in, in foster care or other settings. Uh, and there's research on that that actually gets into early attachment. And, and, you know, even as young as 18 months, the things that might be happening, you know, when you're crying, are you being responded to? Um, you know, our brains are being formed very early in development, way prior to us having memories. And, uh, you know, I think that you would probably find that there's some correlation between things that are absolutely out of out of your control and whether you felt safety. Um, and, and that's a really important thing. Uh, anybody else have anything to add to that before we move on? Yeah, I can, if I can. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, yeah, I think one of the, you know, I think one of the interesting things to also look at is how society has also looked at what youth are, right? And mm -hmm. youth rights. And so, for example, I can, you know, uh, the, the challenges and the struggles, as far as I understand, like, you know, an, an example I can give you in New York, for example, we know that like up to the early eighties, it was okay to watershed a kid, right? For punishment, right? And how, yeah, it was ridiculous, right? But, you know, it's, I think the society is really just trying to now understand what a youth rights uh, individually um, and, and how do we approach approach them. The culturally speaking, and, and when you look at the leg of the, the troubled teen industry, which the religious programs, they, they have an interesting view culturally of how they view women, right? Mm -hmm. They're considered to be submissive, right? in the, the, the sort of uh, extremist uh, views of Christianity. Uh, and then children have no rights, right? And the, and the rod and the steel and, and that sort of like, you know, story that you hear. So it's really, you know, I think the discussion is really that society is coming around to um, slowly is really, you know, what are the youth rights? What are children's rights, right? And when they're sent away to these programs, who has the rights, right? Does the kid has the rights? Do the parents have the rights? Um, does the facility, right, or the state has the rights over the uh, the individual, and then there's privacy issues and things like that, rights as well. So I think those are all factors in, you know, to be listed. And then those are the, some of the things that we, you know, for we experience. Um, and I, I think we haven't really got into it too too deep, but really extreme situations uh, where our rights were violated as yep. individuals yep. and people. Yeah, um, and we're going to be kind of transitioning there in just a moment. So that's, you know, I really think that that's really, you know, part of the reasoning why society has been struggling with this yep. culturally. Yeah. I, I mean, am, am I wrong here? Am I wrong in saying that, that children rights are human rights? And, and if you wouldn't do something to an adult, you shouldn't do it to a children. 
you know, you, you can't, uh, you know, if you hit an adult, it's an assault, right? But you can hit a child and that's not assault. I mean, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I don't. Think it also has to do with like generational trauma. Mm -hmm. Like what are, what did our, the generation before me, what was the social norm for them? Right. You know right. what I mean? And are they continuing that cycle of treating their kids the way they were treated? Um, and I constantly ask myself that, especially as a, you know, having my own father sexually abuse me, mm -hmm. how, where does that, you know, how do you gather empathy or consideration for somebody like that? Well, that's yeah. how I yeah. found a lot of it is, okay, what happened to him when he was a kid and how long right. has this been perpetuating? Right. Yeah. yeah, but but you know, at, at some point we've got to we've got to take information, and when we know we can do better and do better, um, I, I grew up and I attended uh, a number of private schools when I was very young, uh, and I was I was I was spanked in those schools. Uh, they had corporal punishment. I remember um, I remember a couple occasions well, um, and you know I think that um, spanking was much more common when I was a kid as well, um, and and having been through some of those things, I think that um, you know m my hope is that all of us can do better. Um, and, and, you know, um, you can understand how things have been norms and they have shifted. Uh, but I think it's also on all of us to, to really critically think about what we're doing. And when we have all this new, new information available to us, I mean, the information about the brain, um, when you begin to understand the impact that trauma has on the brain, you, you've got to reevaluate the things that you may have thought or been doing um, and, and I do think, I mean, you know, I think both Kayla and, and, and Gabriel, you're bringing up a good point that we're seeing some shift, I think, in a better direction. But, you know, if you were to, to you know, uh, ask in a room about something like spanking or consequences, uh, it might still be a more even split than we'd like to see at this point. Um, so we've got a lot of work to continue to do. But there's a lot of information out there that we can share to, to help people. Um, so I, I want to shift for a second and I want to talk. And this may be a little a little more difficult, but I want to talk so that people that are listening understand some of the kinds of things that happen in these facilities. So, you know, we know that kids can be restrained and secluded. Um, what are some of the kinds of things that that you saw or that you're aware of uh, that might have been happening to kids in some of these facilities? Um, and uh, Josh, do you mind if I start with you? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I can I can speak from my experience. You know, forced labor was one of the you know mm -hmm. they, they they thought it was funny, but you know, basically if you, if you did something that you weren't supposed to do, which was anything that you did, uh, you, know, you weren't allowed to do anything. <laughs> you know, it was the the independent fundamental Baptist way. You know? um, but you know, they, then so you're written up the next day in in uh, chapel the preacher gets up there and he goes down the list and, you know, looks at each one and he hands out sentence in his kangaroo court, uh, you know, basically to humiliate you. So, you know, I, st I stayed on what they call no level the pretty much the whole time I was there. Um, you know, I, I, I used to like to fight. I'm not going to deny that, deny that, you know, and people used to like to trigger that and bring that out of me. And, uh, they for sure did it on purpose sometimes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, then we'd have to haul wood. You know, uh, I can remember getting undefinite, un what they call uh, indefinite, no, no level, mm -hmm. instead of a week or a few days, you know, undefinite, indefinite, you know, whenever, whenever we tell you you're done. And so we'd get up, you know, early in the morning and haul three pieces of wood from one end of the parking lot to the other end of the parking lot for a few hours. 
uh, go eat lunch, you know, go back out there in the evening after school and haul more wood hmm. uh, on top of your chores. You know, like I worked at a chicken barn, which I enjoyed, but you know, other people might not enjoy that, but it was still a force. What are other things that, that other folks have seen or experienced or, or know people that have, I mean, what kinds of things? Um, I used to well, wash dishes for the entire school three times a day, every single day, um, drenched in dish soap before I went to bed and I wasn't able to take a shower because shower times were over and I had to go to sleep with like dirty dish water all over mm -hmm. me for months on end. Yeah. Mm. Um, also field work, picking weeds outside or um, cleaning the entire facility with like toothbrushes or little tiny unmanageable, like trying to make it torture. Um, mm. There's a consequence list that if you had one consequence, you were 30 minutes of cleaning. Um, yeah, different schools had different tactics for mm -hmm. that. Okay. Uh, Robert, you were going to say something? Yeah, so on that, definitely forced labor. I mean, we'd be hauling rocks from point A to point B to point C, back to point A. No water breaks. The kids would be passing out. Um, we built that school, literally, hmm. um, the students we did. Um, we built the step. We pretty much built the staff houses there. Like, and our parents are paying, we're paying, what, 22000 a year for Agape boarding school. And there's not one educated there's not one teacher who would be allowed to work in an actual high school with their degree. So what are we paying for? What are, what were the parents paying for? Mm -hmm. uh, Chelsea or Gabe, do you have anything to add? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You go, you go ahead, Chelsea. <laughs> oh. I'll go after you. Thanks. Um, I think one of the things that really stands out to me was the lack of actual medical staff. Um, so, you know, the first day that I, I came to my program, we had to have strip searches done. And mm. so they actually brought me to a bedroom and that was the nurse's bedroom. And I had the strip search done on the bed. And, you know, the other part of why I was sent away was because of a sexual assault that happened uh, like a week before. Um, so it was super re-traumatizing and also mm. just incredibly inappropriate. Um mm. You know, and looking now, I, she's not even a nurse. She's an optometrist. Um, so there was really, like, no basis for that, um, that kind of thing. And then we were sick all the time in Jamaica, you know, from the water we and from the food. Um, because, you know, we didn't have treated water. We didn't even have hot water. Um, and so, you know, all of us had major intestinal issues. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, just brushed off as normal. Um, and, you know, it was it was traumatic, mm -hmm. to put it lightly. Mm -hmm. so. uh, Gabriel? Yeah, so um, same program like Josh, uh, and, to, and similar to what Robert was saying, you know, there were these numb mining exercises that they would make us do, right? Um, with Robert, it sounded like it was hauling rocks, with us, it was hauling wood back and forth. Um, and then we, it was used to break down the students to really get them suburban to whatever their spiel was, right? With Freedom Village, it was the religion, Jesus Christ, and really being suburban to whatever the director was saying and dictating towards us. Um, the education was uh, horrible. 
they use, which was called a um, ACE. ACE, Christian SLE, uh, sorry, uh, and Robert probably experienced this as well, maybe, right? Uh, education, which were oh, these yeah. home study like, right? Where they literally would say things like George Washington was this great Christian and yada, yada, yada. Christopher Columbus was a great Christian and, and really was junk. Was you know It really wasn't worth the paper that we're studying. There were no teachers, right? They I probably were, don't want to ask about your science uh, curriculum. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was... What's you know, that? The, you know, it was it wasn't administered by um, by educators, and again, they got away with it because of religious freedoms. And when we checked with Freedom Village, um, they were not registered with the state, right? As an education, the state had no idea what education that they were providing, and so mm -hmm. this junk education that we know, when people graduated and they moved on from this program. Um, and they tried to go to the to the collegiate uh, to the universities. Um, they were rejected mm -hmm. because it was not accepted. Um, it was it was it was junk. It was junk education. And so a lot of people in our community, including myself, had to get a GED uh, to move forward. And, and it was very uh, despairing. The other thing that to to mention is that in the culture there was this there was no health wise. We didn't really have a real nurse. There was this belief with the religious folks and with our program that they didn't believe in drug therapy, right? And so you had kids there who it seemed like they needed some type of help and some type of therapy, and they were taking care. They were taking off their medication medications. We know in New York, you know, and especially during that time, you have to have a nurse to administer medication, right? Um, it's the work, right? You want to think about most facilities, right? Go to any a college, a campus, whatever. You have a maintenance crew. You have um, infrastructure staff. These programs don't. The kids do everything, right? Mm -hmm. So they do. They cook the food. They're cleaning the places. Mm -hmm. They're building houses. Um, what I understand of the other programs, they go out and they 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 kind of just rent these kids out to the uh, to the community to do to do extra work. Um, but there's no staff. There's, we were the ones that pretty much did everything, uh, there. Um, and then again, that's where all the, you know, and like what Robert was saying, it's like, where was the money going? Right. right and what, right. what was going on and why were the needs being, uh, not met? And then on, on top of that, because there was no regulations there and you're in this sort of bubble, right. Where you're isolated. These programs also, you want to keep in mind are like in remote areas. Uh, with Chelsea, she was out. She was in another country. Like it's, you know, there was so far from civilization. And with uh, with Freedom Village, where Robert went to, the same thing. And so they would just do whatever they did and, and get away with things. Sexual mm -hmm. assault is one of the most common things. When mm -hmm. I was there, a friend of mine got sexual. Was he was raped, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and what we found in Freedom Village, in every decade, there was a sexual assault case, right? And right now. In New York State Court, we have four cases that are currently going on. They all revolve with sexual assault from the 80s, right. from, the, to, from the 90s, mm -hmm. and also from uh, the 2000s, right? Yeah. And yeah. then there's allegations for the people who didn't right. go to right. court. Right? Yeah, I was going to say, for, for every case, there are probably many more instances where oh, yeah. things like that are happening and, and people are afraid to come forward or, or don't come forward. 
But um, you know, the one, the one thing to keep in mind, and, and and you guys can tell me about your other programs. From my understanding, like Freedom Village, and they could have been similar. The populations were small, and so when something happened and abuse happened, you know, everyone knows. So what do I mean by that, right? Freedom Village, for example, Bobby, I mean, Josh, if you could help me out, maybe it was like 60 boys the most or something like that they will have, yeah, right? They can only fit in so maybe 200 max, right? But they can never fill mm -hmm. in the beds, right? Yeah. So sometimes it was 150, there were girls and boys. And so you have that population. So you got to think about how many staff members do you really have, right? Mm -hmm. Who's really who's overseeing these people, right? Mm -hmm. And so very small communities, small groups, and and really the staff they knew um in some of the court cases right now that are in there they're also alleging that they were also aware right and they were or they were reported right, right. Of, of the cases yeah and i want to get to the staff in a minute but i just wanted to ask real quickly um kind of again thinking about the things that happen in these facilities uh were any of you restrained secluded or isolated i was oh yeah yeah yeah, it looks oh, like yeah. I'm seeing most of you shaking your head. Um, you know, I've also heard things about kind of getting very poor nutrition. Uh, was that an issue? Yeah. So yeah. it seems a lot There's of There's also are... medical injections, like where you're injected with sedated. And they so force, force medications. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and how common are those things in terms of, you know, a forced, um, you know, medication or a restraint or a seclusion? Uh, how often might things like that happen in a facility like that? You know, the, the staff never restrained me. Uh, it was always, so they, in the level system, it was A, uh, A C, E, um, PC, PCM, and then, and then junior staff. Well, junior staff, didn't, they didn't really get paid. They were supposed to be getting paid $50 a month, but they lived in the dorms and they did, you know, so basically we had another student as, you know, what they call staff. That's, a, that's who, you know, like if I got angry, they would, they would tackle me and monkey pile and hold me down. And then they really thought I was demon possessed then because I'm, I'm you know, mm -hmm. I'm a school. So, so they had other students there um, subjecting you to punishment, yeah. consequence, whatever you might say. Hmm. You know, just well, uh, staff wise, you know, the, the Dean of Men, he went, and Josh knows him, he, he was with us in the program. They appointed people who were in the program and they elevated them to staff. And so these positions, you know, this is a population of people where we're labeled, right? And it's, I think it's inappropriate as trouble teens, right? And this is who we are. Right, right. And we have people who really have some problems. And so here they're placing these, these, these individuals who are our peers with the same struggles, right, uh, in those positions. And then those are the people who are running the program um, in the for for Freedom Village, for example, it would be for the director's uh, what he, his direction, and it, it was just terrible because they would they would restrain people. If you are gonna they, they, you're gonna leave, they'll isolate you, um, and they use all weird different tactics, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it was your peers who are policing you, and so you had this system set up, and this write up sort of like thing, right? And so you're always afraid you're going to be written up for something that was frivolous. And it was always some frivolous thing. But mm -hmm. you don't want to get in trouble because then you're going to be right. set to the woodpile. And the woodpile was this, again, torturous thing that you do, this numb exercise. You're isolated from everybody. You have to sit on a table. You can't talk. You can't talk on the woodpile. You're mm -hmm. in upstate New York, for example. It's freezing cold. You still got to be out there, right, for hours. 
And, you know, it was really, you know, you'll get in trouble for like dumb stuff, right? You right. looked across right. the room and they said they accused you for a girl. You're on this punishment for months sometimes. Mm -hmm. and it, it's a matter of compliance and control. It's all about, you know, control. Um, now, now let, me, let me ask you a question and, and anybody can take this, but I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, one of the things that we think about from the perspective of what happens often in, in, to kids in schools, um, you know, is, is the why it's, you know, you kind of work this through your head and you think about some of the things that you saw staff do to either you or someone else. And you have to ask that question, like, how can how can other people do these things to people? Um, you know, and, and certainly, you know, I guess if, if you know, as you described, Gabriel, people go through this system where, you know, they they've gone through it and, and now they're they're subjecting other people to the things that they went through. Um, you know, it's, it's just a, a chain of trauma, but why do you think that is? Why do you think that people and anybody can take this, but, uh, why do you think it is that people will do some of these things? I mean, if, if you reflect on them, um, you would think, well, gee, that doesn't sound right. But, but somehow, uh, people are convinced to do these things. Chelsea, you look like you were unmuting and ready to talk. I'm always ready to talk. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, I know for me in Jamaica, like one of the things that I learned a lot about was wage exploitation. Um, so, you know, our facility was located in a really remote part of Jamaica and the workers that we had as our daily staff, um, they lived in the same conditions that we did and they were paid, you know, pennies per hour. Um, they did not have, you know, an education or a background in this. Um, but at the time that I went, you know, Jamaica was in a very bad spot economically. Mm -hmm. And so people actually lived in homes, you know, that were portable so they could move from one place to another when there was a job. And the program owners knew this and took advantage of that. Um, so you really had people that didn't have any other choices. Um, and I think that was something that helped me to get through the program was realizing that, like, not only was I taking a cold shower and feeling horrible, but... So was this lady and her child who lived with mm -hmm. her in this, you know, backwood mm -hmm. unit. Um, you know, so for the daily staff, that's something that I think is really common. You know, even the programs here in the States, they tend to operate in very remote areas where there's not really any other employment opportunities. Um, and they recruit people either right out of school or for, you know, $10, $12 an hour. And sure. that does not give you the population of workers, you know, that are in it because they genuinely care about these children and, and want to work in behavioral health. You know, it's right. It's, right. This is the only job I could get. And now I'm here and this kid is an asshole. And so I'm going to be an asshole back because mm -hmm. I wasn't trained and I don't have the skills either. You right. know? So, and, and don't you think to a degree, it's a matter of power and authority as well. So you yes. come in as that low level staff member and the person that is, is providing you an opportunity, a job is telling you that this is what you need to do. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I think, you know, we were, I, you know, we run into this with teachers sometimes that'll contact us and be like, you know, um, many will, you know, come into that new situation and think, well, gee, this is what I'm told to do. It doesn't sound right, but I guess I should do it. Every once in a while, somebody will say, well, no, 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 this, this isn't right. And, and they won't, you know, they'll, they'll walk away from it. But, you know, I think it's very easy whether, and, and we see this in our lives in a lot of places, you go to a doctor's office, doctor's wearing a white coat, tells you to do this. Uh, you know, we have this kind of authority uh, complex and we think of oh, somebody in authority told us to do it, then we should do it. And of course, there've been famous psychological experiments about that as well. Um, but, you know, certainly I think the, the power differential and uh, kind of the um, 
tendency for people to follow direction uh, probably plays a big role in it as well. And, and you know, I'm, I'm imagining something Kayla said earlier, but there's there's probably even, you know, what happened to these people or what are what what is their situation and how their own trauma might have um, somehow uh, put them in a situation where they're even more likely to to listen to somebody in authority, even when it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Josh, you yeah, look if, like you- if you're religious, you know, God's telling them to do it, or <laughs> Jesus is telling them to do it, or the preacher is telling them to do it. And mm-hmm. God, in the IFB, that's what you do, it's whatever mm-hmm. preacher mm-hmm. They worship the mob, not the God. Right, right, and I mean, if that's your belief system, that's the ultimate authority, right? So, you know, if if your def, you know, deference is the authority, uh, and you're right. I mean, you know, uh, there there are many things that have happened around the world over many, many, many um, millions of years um, in the name of religion that you have to kind of wonder about. Um, all right, I think, I guy, real quick, I think that it's important yeah. though with the religious programs that we're talking about is really to understand who exactly who they are, right? And, you know, some folks take it, you know, they hear it, it's Christianity and, and, and it's, it's, it's um, some folks might take it as attack as they're really, this is a very specific no, group. No, they're an extremist, right, right. a very extremist fundamentalist group who literally take things to, they're, they're, and when we mention when we say they're a cult is that they do things that are so bizarre and, and so it just doesn't, in their bubble, it makes sense. But mm. in, in, in the real, in the real world, it doesn't, you know. I'm 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 Episcopalian, right? And so right. I am I'm a person of faith. They're not Episcopalian. They're not the Catholics. They're not the Methodists. They're not. They they are a very particular extremist group, and, and that, that's something that needs to really be addressed and looked on. And how their their methodology, they they have a view towards women that are terrible. Like in, in, this is their philosophy, right? Um, Freedom Village. The girls were reporting to us that um they were telling them that they had to be submissive to the man and if mm-hmm. the man had you know asked them to do something their husband they had to do it if it was sexual or whatever it was it was and this was the womanhood classes that they were mm-hmm. being exposed to um so, so that's something i think that to really note and really mm-hmm. the and then the staff because you were talking tying in real quick and then i'll, I'll give it right back to you uh, sky but the staff they were part of that whole network and so we're talking about underpaid people, but with the religious programs, they were sort of doing it like acting like it was almost a ministry sort of approach. And so at Freedom Village, the staff members were getting paid 90 bucks a, a month, right? And yeah. so you got to ask the question, who, who works for 90 bucks a month, right? Nobody. And really nobody, right? These, these guys were really, unfortunately, they, they were full for the network, um, do their cult system, um, and they brought them in, and they were also duke on this. In many cases, as we all look back on it in the group from my, my group in the Freedom Village experience, a lot of the staff members we felt were also victimized in a sense. <laughs> it, it was sold a story to to sort of be part of this system. There were product housing. Uh, we know that some of the staff, that the houses that they had, their homes, were being used against them, right? Um, and that was the only really benefits they had. And it, one of the reasons why the village had left New York was because the staff, uh, New York State, got of a hold of what was going on, and they they sued them and they said that you had to pay back the staff back wages, right? And then there was a couple other things as well, sexual assault case, and also um, some loans that they took. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's also this financial fraud side to these uh, these folks as well. Right, how right. they're making the money. 
Yeah, well, I, I appreciate the point you made about religion because I think it's a really relevant point. Uh, what we're talking about is people that would take the umbrella of religion and manipulate it to uh, their own purpose. And it, it's not saying that, you know, it's bad because it's uh, religious. It's saying that, you know, there are people that are doing it. And, and you know, I think, you know, like anything else, um, you know, you're often talking about a fringe, you're talking about a, a you know, percentage of, of people out there. And, you know, um, I, I don't think, you know, you know, I think about schools because it's one of the the areas that, that I have a lot of experience. But, you know, I don't think teachers think I want to be a teacher so I can restrain and seclude kids. Um, you know, nobody, you know, becomes, uh, you know, goes into that profession to, to hurt people. Now, there's always bad players out there. But, you know, I think that um, oftentimes you're bringing up great points about how the people themselves that are in these situations are in bad situations and perhaps being manipulated as well. Um, so, you know, uh, really, really great points. I appreciate that, Gabriel. Um, I wanted to shift for a second and um, kind of ask you from from your opinion, because, you know, there and I'm going to make some assumptions and tell me if I'm getting anything wrong. But there are, are plenty of youth that end up in in these programs that probably never should be in a program like this that probably need. Um, better support or, um, you know, help um, in various ways that, that could happen uh, while they were at home or, you know, th th there's, but there are, are kids that, that need some kind of uh, help. And again, maybe, maybe there is, um, maybe there are kids that need some kind of help in terms of um, some of the difficulties that they're having. And I guess what I would ask to you is that, you know, what should we be doing? What are the better ways? So, you know, when a parent is concerned about, you know, uh, behaviors, and again, you know, as, as Robert brought up earlier, um, I've heard a lot of stories about behaviors that wouldn't seem to meet any kind of threshold of a kid really needing that serious of help. But there are probably other things that are happening. And again, Chelsea brought up it's it's underneath the behavior. Let's, it's, let's look underneath the behavior. But I guess what I'm asking you is that if you were to have, and I actually had a conversation like this recently. In fact, I reached out to a couple of you about it. But if you were to have a conversation with a parent who was contemplating sending their child to a, uh, a program like this, um, and and you know, convinced that that was what was necessary, what are things that you might recommend that they consider, or what might they, what are better approaches to supporting kids that might really need some help? And I'll throw that out openly to anybody that wants to begin tackling it. I mean, I think first things first is to talk to your child. What does the child want and what does the child need? I think a lot of times parents are making these decisions unilaterally mm -hmm. and they're not involving their children in these discussions. Um, you know, yes, do some children need intensive help? to manage mental health struggles or addictions or, you know, to deal with trauma that they've been through in their life. Absolutely. Um, but I believe that that needs to come from a place of consent. Mm -hmm. The child must be consenting to attend therapy or to attend rehabilitation. We, we already know that therapies and rehabilitations don't work when kids don't consent. So, um, I mean, that's where I, I would always tell everyone to start is start by having those difficult conversations with your child talking to your child about what you're seeing and why it's difficult for you and involving them in finding a solution that would be beneficial. Um, <laughs> if you need additional levels of care, look to your community uh, before looking, you know, out of state or far away and understand that residential treatment, you know, 
under the best of circumstances, right? When everybody goes in with the best of intentions and things are, you know, laid out perfectly and, and regulated super, super well, it's still a breeding ground for abuse, right? You are putting kids in an environment where they are taken care of by people that aren't their parents, usually far away from home. So mm -hmm. okay, that would be my advice. Okay, any other? Um, until you quit. When you quit and send them away to somebody else to raise, then, then, then you fail. You know, and, and, go ahead, Robert. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you know, you know, I think that you know, it's the, the reality is that we have families that come from all different directions, right? And we label these kids as troubled, but from my perspective, you know, when I was at Freedom Village, for example, right, we had a girl. The youngest kid was like 13, 12 years old, and supposedly he was a drug addict, right? How was he? I, it was really hard to believe that, right? And he came from like Pennsylvania in, in the in the, the boonies, right? And so, really, what I understood was that a lot of these people were coming from broken families themselves. The the parents themselves didn't really have a great handbook, or I'll even go further that really cared about their kids, right? To, to be honest. And when I was at Freedom Village, one of the things that I noticed, my parents did come quite often. Um, but they, I was there for three years. And for three years, I didn't see nobody else's parents for, for a lot of the kids. And it was really sad to see that, that no one cared. You know, it, it's, it's really sad in this society, but we have people who don't really care about their kids, right? And that's, so that's one thing to really, you know, the, to explore the idea of really what is the family, the responsibility, uh, how can you, you know, the, so there really needs to be a lot of work, I think, in, in, in the family structure altogether, mm -hmm. right? Where, for example, guy, you have a family, I, I know that you have it all together, um, not perfect, right? Like no one's perfect. Nobody's but, perfect. Well, yeah. you're you're not really you really have not only passion, but you have some type of knowledge of really what are the right steps to really benefit your your, your children and how you're going to get them to be successful and productive in society. Um, some parents don't have this these tools, right? And they're so lost. So they really need parenting tools. Some um, some are economically strapped, and then there's some that some of these kids don't even have parents, right? And this is how they end up in the foster care system, right? As well. Um, so it's, it's really, you know, I think of Hillary Clinton when she said, she said something like to the fact that it's, it's a community that takes mm -hmm. care of, of, of the kids. And it's the, a village, right? right? And so we really have to think in community sense, um, and, and really uh, taking care of one another. And I really mm -hmm. think that that's the approach when you're, when these, these programs are presented, um, you know, they really needs to be some, um, uh, you have to think into the terms of really what are the red flags to look yeah. for because yeah. they are red flags that you can see um, and, that definitely could be uh, detrimental for your kid. Right. And, and what I'm hearing from you is, is so true in so many cases is we need to look upstream. We need to look upstream from what's happening with the behavior of the child to what are the supports that the the parent or parents, you know, some, sometimes it may be a single parent or a foster uh, family, what are the things that are challenging for them and how can we better support? I mean, we definitely need to do a better job supporting parents and families. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I think parenting is, 
is, uh, you know, I mean, it can be a difficult job. It doesn't come with a manual and you learn a lot along the way. Um, but, you know, depending on the situation you're in, it can be extremely difficult, right? Uh, depending on your your financial situation, your, you know, there's a lot of things that, that feed into that. So certainly offering more supports and better mental health supports and better supports for family, I think are important. Robert, you, you sounded like you had something to add as well. Yeah, I would say there's a couple aspects to it. So, I mean, it's, it's about having like a support plan um, for your child. Um, I work with behavioral or mental health patients, I should say, at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and every single time we give a parent list of options, usually uh, this is what you can do, you know. And mm-hmm. I would also go back and what defines, ask the parent, what defines troubled? Like really dig, because that's really a deep topic that I don't, think is really like what makes your kid a troubled kid like what's your mm-hmm. definition like right. right i told you i told my mom i hated her when i was 10 i would right. um, stomp up the stairs i mean right. when i was 10 years old i had a lock on the outside of my door for mm-hmm. not committing one criminal or drug or, like literally just telling my mom i hated her like mm-hmm. yeah i couldn't yeah. leave my room so yeah it was it's like it has a lot of traumatic long-term effects that I'm just starting to realize. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What What is your advice um, or, you know, because we know that this has traumatic impact, both in the short term and the long run. And we know that trauma can be a lifetime, um, you know, it doesn't go away, you know. Um, do any of you have, you know, advice, you know, because all of you have been on a journey and, and a pretty amazing journey to to influence change and to get past the the things that you've been, uh, you know, that you've experienced. What would your advice be to others that may be coming out of this? Or, um, you know, what advice would you offer to other people in terms of kind of the trauma and uh, moving forward? Anybody have any thoughts? I guess I'll talk. <laughs> Um, I think for me, finding community was really beneficial. Um, so talking to people who went through um, similar experiences to you, particularly people from your program, if you're able to find survivors from your own program, it can be really validating just to have somebody tell you, yes, this did happen to you. Yes, I remember this, you know, um, that's a huge one. Also, just be gentle on yourself. Uh, you know, even if you think, oh, I'm, I'm fine, this doesn't bother me at all. Um, there are, there are traumas beneath the surface that you have yet to discover. And mm-hmm. when you do, you know, it's going to hurt and you're mm-hmm. going to feel a lot of things. You're going to feel anger, sadness, um, you know, powerlessness and, and just be easy on yourself. You know, mm-hmm. you can't mm-hmm. fix it all. You can't change every single person's mind. You're not, you may not get the validation that you want from your family, um, but you can give those things to yourself and to others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Kayla, I was going to say if you had anything to add. Yeah, I was, um, you know, respecting, like knowing yourself and respecting yourself and how much you can take. Um, so if you need to disassociate and continue to do that, because a lot of us have been doing that as a survival technique mm-hmm. when we were in the program and after we just never came out of it, you know, um, if you're not ready, like that's totally okay. Um, never feel pressured 
to share or get involved just because you see this wave of people who are doing it because um, it can be really detrimental to your own mental health. So making sure that you prioritize yourself um, and knowing how much you can handle. Um, and then the second thing I would say is just like, if you ever do decide to unpack all of that, these are the places, safe places that we're creating for um, relatable issues for you to come and unpack all of that in a safe space where mm -hmm. people can hear you, see you, relate to you, validate you. Um, so we're here when you're ready, but if you're not mm -hmm. ready, it's totally okay too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to okay. be mindful. Go ahead. Who was going to? I just want to add this quick thing uh, to Chelsea and Kayla. I couldn't agree more with you too. Um, I probably, and many others probably wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for our communities. I know your schools all have different like groups from former students and there's like TTI, Breaking Code Silence. But like a lot of us don't have families to talk to about this. Like my family's asked me, please don't talk about this publicly. You're going to ruin our name, blah, 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 blah. And I can have intimate conversations with almost anyone in the Breaking, uh, breaking Code Silence group um, about my experiences and their experiences. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's such an important piece is, you know, finding finding people that um, understand what our journey has been. And, and um, you know, uh, I think there's something really therapeutic about having people that understand what you've been through and, and you know, what you're trying to do. Um, I want to I want to be respectful of time and we've gone a little long, um, but this has been such a great conversation. But there's an, an important piece I want to hit before we wrap things up. Um, but before I do, I've got one other question that's been floating in my mind since, uh, Gabriel, you said something that about your, your family visiting. And one of the things I've heard, and I'm just kind of curious if this has been consistent with your experience, but some of these facilities from what I've heard, limit communication with the outside, limit your ability to talk to people, limit your ability to talk candidly with people. Um, and may even say, well, gee, um, you know, your, your child is not, they're trying to manipulate you. They're not telling you the truth. What's happening here? You know, it's all rainbows and, and, and ponies. Um, you know, they, they just, you know, they're just trying to manipulate you. Did any of you have that experience in terms of communication? Oh yeah. Every, yeah. every, every single letter I, I reported a physical and sexual abuse that I went through and other students went through every single letter got read. Every phone call was mine. There was nothing ever to get out so and you can't give it to anyone to send out because no one's going to do that and no one leaves the property mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um all right um so let me, let me answer where i was i was actually on the phone with my parents and i said something that the staff member who monitored i mean literally was sitting right beside me i'm sitting here facing a desk and he's sitting this way facing behind me and it's i mean as soon as i said that he hit the hit the hang up thing on the phone and choke slam me across that desk. Mm. And I don't know what they told my parents later, but surely they had to explain hanging up on them. Right. Right. <laughs> mm. Okay. So I want to get the one really important question. This will be kind of where we wrap up. And and if you have a minute, I might see if there's any other questions. I, I had planned to take more questions from the, uh, the audience, but we've just had such a great conversation. Um, and my question is this, um, the there is an issue here with the trouble team industry something needs to change you're out there advocating for change uh you know you've had some success in, in the work you've did around freedom village uh, i know there are others working you know related to specific uh 
uh, programs and schools. Uh, but I also know that there's some federal and, and state level, um, you know, initiatives out there. So what I want to ask you, and I want to go around and ask each of you, but um, it's kind of a multi-part question. One is what changes would you like to see? And, and what would you what would you ask people to do that are watching this? People that might be watching, what can they do to help? So I'm going to go ahead and start, uh, Gabriel, with you. And if you can just kind of say a little bit about kind of what you think needs a change and how people can influence. And, and uh, if you can, don't try to keep it not too long just so we can get to everybody. Um, sure. And uh, we'll, we'll go from there. Sure. So the, the common denominator that we found, um, at least from my perspective, is that um, the biggest challenge is that we know that these are businesses that are operating and it's for profit. It's a billion dollar industry. Um, and what they seem to be doing to cut costs is the dodging regulations, right? And, and, and what happens when you dodge regulations and, and with, with the states that you work in municipalities is that you're not following proper protocol. And so what do you mean by that? What do I mean is that you'll have people, uh, if there's sexual assault, right? And you're a staff member, how do you, how do you report that, right? Um, and if you're not getting those trainings, right, to be a mandating reporter, uh, it's led to the facility. And what we know from our experience is that they, if you're self-regulating, you tend to try to cover up things, right, for your beneficial, mm -hmm. uh, you know, affects the insurances, affects their money, affects their bottom line, bad press, etc. And so it's really what it comes down to is, is, is legislation, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think personally that the states need to buckle it up and really uh, put more uh, progressive solutions uh, for legislation to really how these operate for the religious institutions that use this sort of get out of jail card, right? In some of the states, there's about, I think, 14 states or so that allow an institution to say, oh, we're a ministry. So even when their laws, they're in place, right? How are they going to be, you know, uh, they, they dodge them. Right. And that was the case in Freedom Village. Freedom Village, so you know, was in, I know I'll just label it as liberal New York. Right. And so it sort of does, it's a, it's a weird anomaly. Right. How, how did it operate in New York with that progressive sort of tonality that New York has? Right. <laughs> uh, and, and, and sort of this survive and fly it under the radar. Uh, it was religious freedoms. And so, really, you know, whatever facility you may be religious or, or not, you believe in the moon God or whatever you have to follow the law. Right. right, and, it, right. And, you, and you have to. Um, okay. And then lastly, I would just say that, you know, federally we, we need, we need federal regulations. And so we're seeing state by state by state under fire Roberts in Missouri. We're in Missouri right now. It's happening right now. Right. We saw mm -hmm. Washington state with COVID right. Where pro where there was a program, uh, they couldn't handle it because of COVID, right? There's health challenges for these facilities. The states don't have it all together. We need federal interve intervention. Mm -hmm. yep. yep. uh, Your rights should not vary at the state line, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we don't need states that become uh, a safe place for people to send. You know, I mean, what, what happens then? Everybody gets sent to this state and we can probably- well, what the, the one thing we didn't talk about is like, where are these kids? So like Freedom Village, for example- None of these kids were from New York. They're from right, all over right. the states, right? right and right. so if Chelsea is whatever state she is, she has rights in those states, right? right. But then if they take Chelsea and they send her to Jamaica, so right. now she's, yeah. she's not a Jamaican citizen, right? right. right. And so her rights are, yep. should be amplified there, right? Yep. And, and represented and, and honored. 
And so okay. really those are the things that I think that need to be looked upon. Okay. Uh, and I'll, I'll pass it to uh, somebody else. Oh, we also, right. we have a campaign that we warned them campaign as well. And I'm going to put the link to that in the chat. Uh, I actually had that queued up and ready because uh, I wanted to make sure we share that with people as a way they could take action. Um, Josh, um, if you could, you know, again, you know, what, what would you like to see happen and what can people do to support this effort? So we've been working on uh, federal legislation, you know, Alabama, for instance, in 2017 passed uh, House Bill 440, uh, which, you know, is a state bill. Uh, there are other, other states doing great work, uh, but we need a baseline federal bill uh, that regulates this industry. There's no other industry, especially a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry that is not regulated, not anywhere, not in the world, not in, you know, we're talking about in the United States and this industry is over $2 billion a year and there's no regulation whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Because and if they, especially if they claim religious freedom, well, religious freedom don't give you the right to abuse your kids. I don't care what, what religion you believe, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that there's still laws and religious exemptions do not exclude you from, from being liable. Is there any current federal law out there that uh, people that are watching this can can call their con- congressional representatives or senators and say, "Hey, we want you to support that"? And so, congregate. You know, for- yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. So we, there's um, CASA, which you know you, you obviously you know about. Right. Um, that is uh, has been introduced in the House and the Senate, and I believe they're going to pick it up here pretty soon. Um, you know, and, and I have contacted my uh, senators and representatives and and ask them to look at it. And I do believe that, that uh, at least one of those is going to vote for it. So uh, that one for sure. And then the one Robert's talking about. Yeah. Um, so there's the one congregate for care act, which um, it's like, in a way it's like the constitution in, in a sense, because it has a bill of rights for kids. Um, and it has, I encourage everyone to Google Congregate for Care Act. Um, yeah, I, I'll put a link in the chat as well for that. Yeah, and I have been speaking. Um, call your local representative. Um, I called my local representative every day for yep. like a month. And she finally, literally, um, her whole they talked to me. Her office talked to me. Uh, they sent me a letter. They're going to be um, uh, standing with um, Adam Schiff and a couple other mm-hmm. people who are um, just introduced the bill into the Congress. And from what I understand, there's pretty much no opposition as of now. You know how politics can work. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's great, um, Josh. Do you have anything else to finish up on, or I do. I was gonna. I was gonna say go to uh, go to the We Warn Them yep. campaign okay. website and go in the toolkit. And okay. there's some ideas in there. Okay, great, great. And, and Robert, you kind of got started, so why don't we let you kind of take it from here? Uh, again, yeah. kind of thinking about um, what it is you'd like to see and what people can do. And you've already given us some some uh, tip on that. And I did put that link in the chat as well. Yeah, I, th- I think there needs to be, I get everyone wants like federal regulation. There needs to be, uh, we have the Department of Social Services and we have the Child Protection Services. They're useless, absolutely useless. Hmm. There needs to be another branch or department stemmed from one of those two branches that's connected to every school, religious, boarding, public school in the country. And somehow it's connected together, which I'm sure it can be done. Um, there just needs to be more accountability because as Gabriel was saying earlier, I mean, you can go report 
hey, um, I was just physically abused by this staff member. Oh, this staff member just molested me. Or this staff member just did this and this. Okay. Um, for example, a staff member there at the school put a hair cutter cord, strangled me um, in front of the whole school. It had to, it had to take mm -hmm. students and staff to get him off of me. And he was suspended for three days. Why wasn't my family notified? Mm -hmm. When I reported sexual abuse multiple times, how come like if you were a parent and I'm sure if you ask these religious people the same questions, they would tell you the answer, the, the, the honest, true answer of, of what you want to hear, your answer, probably, because we just need to have an open conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, nowadays, it's we live in a very scary world where we can't agree to disagree. And it's either you're right or you're wrong. And we just need more discussion, open discussion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, that's great. I appreciate it, Robert. And, you know, I hope you take some uh, comfort in, and, and, you know, it sounds like you've met a lot of people just recently as you've been, been gun to share your story. Um, and, you know, there are some really amazing people, of course, on, on this, uh, this call here, but so many others out there to, that, that are, that are pushing for the right thing. We, we, there's a lot of positive momentum and I know sometimes it seems overwhelming, but, you know, take comfort in the, the work that's being done by all the people here and, and so many others. Um, Kayla, I want to get your perspective in terms of what do you think needs to happen and what you might encourage people to do? So aside from all like the federal legislation and all the rules and laws and regulations that they should be following or even, you know, other departments being made, I really think that there's a need for a committee of people like ourselves mm -hmm. Um Mm -hmm. to be constantly checking up on these new rules and regulations mm -hmm. um, because it's that accountability factor. If we take the fire from under their butt, then they're going to just do what they were doing. Mm -hmm. We have to mm -hmm. keep that fire right there so that they know that we're watching them. So that's mm -hmm. why I love We Warn Them because we've been watching them. We did warn them. And now we're demanding that it changes because mm -hmm. enough of our youth have been traumatized and it's becoming a a crime against humanity because a mm -hmm. lot of these youth are not becoming productive members of society. Right. They're, they're right. caught up in this trauma that they have to overcome right. where some of us don't overcome it. We commit suicide or overdose or, you know, fall into prostitution. Like a lot of kids that I, you know, work with, mm -hmm. I see mm -hmm. them going into jail, going, living on the streets, uh, on drugs a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just masking and, it's kind of just like the mental health needs to be mm -hmm. a, a reparation of people who have gone through these mm -hmm. facilities, just like we've seen this opioid ec epidemic and how right. these pharmaceutical companies are having to pay millions of dollars to create um, places to help these people who have been affected by those drugs. Well, there needs to be the same type of approach to alleviate mm -hmm. the damage that these places have done to us. Um, so yeah, focusing on kind of like a restorative uh, future for us. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you have, um, you know, I mean, some of the things that you were mentioning there, um, you know, sound like really amazing ideas. Um, I don't know that they're part necessarily of current legislation, but are you hoping to um, further some of these ideas or, um, you know, is there anything that anybody can do to help with kind of the, the ideas that, um, you and the, the campaign have, or should they just go to the website and connect with you if they have more interest? Yeah, I mean, get okay. involved. Even if you want to set up your own campaign in your own right. state, right. you know, don't let those barriers of us being separated 
keep you from doing the active work. Um, just like Josh said, like you could call or how Robert said, you could call for a month, but do it. Annoy the right. shit out of them. Right, um, right, right. There's nothing in comparison. Yeah. To Don't go away. Don't go away. Persistency is key. Yeah. And we'll galvanize. I mean, it's going to yep. take time. You have to right. be patient. Right. Um, right. And we're going to galvanize. So yep. it's just a matter of do you want to be in that? Um, yep. Okay, great. Uh, so Chelsea, uh, we're, we're coming up to you for the, the final answer here. So in terms of, um, you know, what, what you want to see and what people can do to make a difference. Um, I think, you know, just elevating the fact that youth have civil and human rights and protecting those yes. civil and human rights is key. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we are still the only nation that has signed but not ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. So that would be something yeah. that I would really like to see us do as a country. Um, something else that I would like to see are, you know, benefits trafficking and human trafficking laws applied to the troubled teen industry. You know, the reason that I was sent to Jamaica was because I had rights in my home state to refuse to go to a treatment center. Um, and so I was taken somewhere where I didn't have that right. That's trafficking. That shouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. um, and that shouldn't happen to anyone else. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as how people can get involved, I think, you know, right now, really just talking to young people, talking to survivors, hearing these stories and and letting it shift your perspective on what children and adolescents actually need, I think is really, really huge. We need a cultural mm -hmm. shift in the way that we view childhood and the way that we protect the actual needs and welfare of children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, am I remembering that you have a uh, kind of a blog and website, uh, the Youth Emancipation Project? Is that right? Yes, I do. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, um, I have not been writing on it yet, but I plan to start doing some actual writing um, and I am working really, really slowly on a book. So. Okay, great. Uh, and I'm going to put that link in there as well. And I'll also try to get the Facebook link because I know you've been active on that as well. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to invite the members of the, the audience here. Um, we're going to have to wrap this up because we've been going a bit long. But if you have any final comments or anything you want to share with the uh, uh, the group here to, to feel free to put those in the comments. Uh, I saw just a second ago a uh, comment from uh, Kelly said, you're all very courageous and are helping people you won't likely ever meet. Uh, and that's so true. I mean, there, there's so much is this idea that, um, you know, you're doing things that are going to have a positive outcome for people you may never know. Um, you know, when, when I worked with my son's school district and we were able to change the policy and procedure around the, what they were doing with their strain seclusion, there's 16,000 kids that are less likely to be restrained and secluded. Uh, it's not the change we need to see everywhere, but it's a step. And I think anything we can do is a, a really positive step. So you are all amazing. Um, you know, I've had, it's been really a privilege to get to, to meet you all and uh, to know about the work that you're doing. And certainly, you know, at the Alliance, we want to, you know, I mean, I think we're really aligned in, in you know, what's happening in these programs is, is the same things happening in other places. It's the things we're doing to kids in the name of behavior, when in fact, what kids really need is they need appropriate support and they need uh, help and they need uh, things that are going to meet their needs. So I want to thank you all for, you know, the courage to do this, um, the the dedication and, and the uh, uh, the stamina to stay on this call this long. I know it's been longer than I'd anticipate it. Um, but, you know, you, again, you are all doing amazing things. Uh, Robert, you had mentioned earlier, um, 
you know, kind of the, the challenge of, you know, um, not having people that you could talk to about this and, you know, finding community. Um, and I encourage you all and everybody that's watching out there that might feel isolated. There is a, there are great communities out there, uh, of people to join. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll extend this invitation to, to Robert or anybody else. Uh, you ever need somebody to talk to, feel free to, to give me a ring. Um, you know, I mean, I am really sorry to see all the things that all of you here um, today have been through, but um, you know, what, what you're doing is amazing and know that it's going to make a difference. It has already made a difference. Uh, I appreciate your perseverance for, for not wanting to stop. Um, so anyway, I just want to share a couple of nice comments here that we're getting. Um, you know, you're all amazing. Thank you for your stories and work and, and your, your stories are so important. You know, great job guys. Um, great job, Robert. Um, you know, thank you for your advocacy and speaking out for change. So important what you're doing. So, uh, anybody have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah. One last thing. Always remember no matter where, how you got into this or how you heard of it or what your background is relating to this topic. But um, more unites us than divides us. Mm -hmm. We have more to relate on mm -hmm. um, than we have to differentiate ourselves from each other. Yeah. So always keep that in your forefront. Yeah. That, that, that's a really important piece of uh, advice because one of the things that I know from, from kind of running a community, um, you know, that we do with the Alliance is that um, those of us that are part of the community have been through some trauma. And, and due to our own trauma, sometimes it's hard for us to stay united um, because, you know, we feel so strongly and passionately about these things. But I think as a, a survivor community, uh, as all of these different communities are, the more we can focus on that, the things that really connect us, um, there are details that we may not agree completely on on anything. And that's just human nature. But the more we can bring those things together, the stronger, the louder that voice. Um, that's a great place to focus. So I, I really appreciate that piece of uh, piece of wisdom. I guess is the best way to put it. Any other uh, thoughts or final words? I, I do want to say this um, that I don't think was touched upon. Um, I do believe we need the justice department needs to be overhauled and re shuffled or whatever. Um, for example, Circle of Hope, 105 felony charges, raping 16 girls, charged with raping 16 girls. Mm. They worked at Agape before opening this girl's school, and yet they get released on a $1,000 cash bond. Mm. Mm. So you're pretty much, it's not even a slap on the wrist to any victim, it, or I'm sorry, it's not even a slap on the wrist to any school and it's literally a slap on the face to every like survivor in the world, literally. Mm -hmm. I mean, they see the stuff going on and all right. Um, all these kids came forth for what, mm -hmm. you Thanks. know, and yeah. like Kayla said, strength in numbers. Yep. Uh, Chelsea, any final words? Uh, no, well, I've never seen you run out of words, Chelsea. I know, right? Do I? <laughs> I can always, I can always talk. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, one thing that we could always use is statute of limitations reform, um, particularly as it relates to crimes against children. Um, I think, on average, we've seen it takes survivors roughly a decade to realize that what occurred to them was abuse, and by that point, you're almost always out of the statute of limitations, so we have no real recourse at that point. Um, Child USA is an org that's doing a lot of really good work on statute of limitations reform. So I just want to give them a quick little shout out. Um, 
but check out what they're doing there. Um, and that is something that would benefit survivors immensely and allow us to potentially have some justice for the crimes that were committed against us as children. Right, great. Uh, uh, Gabe, any final final thoughts or words? Yeah, I would just say uh, two things, uh, just reflecting on what everyone just said. You know, it's it really call your officials. It's beneficial to you as an individual to know who your elected officials are as an individual, but really have that conversation to get them in motion. You know, it, it, we didn't touch about the uh, the hearings that went, but Congress knows there was a hearing that, that the gal did. And we know that these congressional officials, some of them have a shelf life that lasts almost forever. They were there, right? And they know about this issue. The problem is that they have so much ugly to deal with, right? And really the public, it's not really addressed. So call, call your elected official, call, find out who, who they are. If you don't, you can go to commonscause.org. Our website has a link towards them. It'll give you all your officials from the bottom all the way to the president of the United States and how you can and call them. And they want to hear from you. And look, I can tell you from my experience, I'm calling people who I don't belong in their districts and I'm getting through. Right. And so if I can get through uh, and, and reach them, you, you're a constituent. Um, you know, they, they care uh, they, what, what their voters are saying. So, so definitely call. And then the last thing I would just say is, is really like, you know, Robert went to Agape. That's something that's happening right now. Agape is a program that's been under fire and what's happening in Missouri. So really, you know, the community, those viewing really look. And it's still open. It's still open. And let me just say that as far as I understand, and Robert, you can correct me, the sexual assault cases, right? It was really, really extreme extremities that these young people face, similar to like with Freedom Village, similar to Circle of Hope, that really there has to be some intervention. And so I really think that if folks can go out and really start inquiring and looking to make sure kids are safe, you know, also go out to these places and go visit. They're in the middle of nowhere and they put them there so that they can be, they can do their own thing and, and, and no one says anything. And so really go the distance and really just to make sure everything is up. We're, we're, we're all asking just to make sure everything is up and up is really, you know, how we say in New York, you know, that, that's where we just, ba we basically just want to have, uh, you know, they, they, there's some entity, there are other eyes looking okay. in there, right? Right, right? And so that's really what it is. And, and right. guys, thank you again for putting this together for us. Yeah, so, absolutely, yeah. absolutely happy to. Uh, and Josh, you, you get the very final word, if, as long as your audio is still working. Don't send your kids to the trouble teen industry. <laughs> Reach out to them. Go to our website, you know, uh, we've warned them.org. Get in touch with us. And we, we, we do have resources, um, you know, and we can, we can help you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you, you know, I actually found recently, um, you know, somebody that had reached out that was considering, um, you know, sending their their child to a facility, and a uh, another um, advocate that I know from the troubled teen industry actually had offered to to talk to the parent, and uh, you know, I know that that so many people are generous with their their time and and want to help. So thank you all again for all that you're doing. Uh, thank you for spending all this time with uh, us today. Um, I'll, um, you know, um, send you the, the links when this is all uh, published everywhere. Um, but I have a couple announcements for everyone else, but I'm going to let you go. Uh, if you want to hang around for, in the waiting room for one second, I'll be back just to give us a final wrap up and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, so thank you all. And uh, for those of you that are still on, I just wanted to mention real quickly that we have our next event 
uh, happening again in two weeks. So we do these events every two weeks. Uh, and our next event, we're going to be uh, hosting uh, a conversation with Jesse Kohler and Dan Press. Uh, they are with the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice. Uh, they're doing a lot of work around uh, getting trauma-informed approaches used more widely. I'm really excited about that conversation. That's going to be on November 18th at 4.30. Uh, so thank you so much again, those of you that joined us, and we look forward to seeing you again soon.